Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. Welcome, everybody. And this morning, I have the pleasure of uh, chatting uh, with my good friend and colleague, uh, Sarah Hornsby. And um, I'll let Sarah introduce herself uh, and tell you a little bit about her background. But before I do, uh, thank you for taking the time, Sarah. Uh, you're yeah, in Ar- you. Arizona at the moment, right? I am. Yep. I'm yeah. in Arizona and it's starting to get hot here. So, um, but yeah, as far as my background goes, I am originally trained as a dental hygienist and I got my degree in dental hygiene in 2008. That's when I graduated from school. And after a couple years, I got advanced training in a field called oral facial myofunctional therapy or um, oral myology. And so you can call me now either an oral facial myologist or a myofunctional therapist. So I see patients um, to teach them exercises that helps with nasal breathing and tongue posture and swallowing and things like that. Yeah. And um, what, what sort of age group are you mainly dealing with? Well, I see a lot of children, but I actually work with a good mix of adults and kids. I would say the only age group I don't really treat are like infants and really young kids, like probably two and under. But for most of most of my career, I've been working with kids who are seeing orthodontists and dentists. And there's a big overlap, as you know, in these myofunctional symptoms and in the dental symptoms that you work with. Can you expound a little bit more on that for, for parents? Like what, what would they possibly see in their kid's mouth that would alert them to the fact that they have a poor tongue posture or a mouth breathers, et cetera? Yeah, I think the things that most parents will resonate with is they'll know that their kids um, struggle with breathing. Um, like maybe they've been told by their dentist or someone, some healthcare provider that they have large tonsils and adenoids. So that might be something that a parent has heard from a doctor. Uh, It could be that their kids have allergies or food sensitivities. Those are things that parents might be able to pick up on. Um, You know, anything that can lead to extra inflammation in the body can lead to mouth breathing and troubles with mucus and things like that. Um, Parents might notice that their kids have crooked or crowded teeth. You know, they might be thinking we need to get into the orthodontist soon. Um, They might notice, too, that their kids are thumb sucking or finger sucking, and those would all be signs that would tell me as a oral facial myologist that they're probably going to need this therapy. They probably have some soft tissue dysfunction or, um, you know, what we would call just basically low muscle tone, or we see it as mouth breathing and things like that. And and I know uh, I've been working with um, oral myologists for many years now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but can you tell me uh, what you feel, uh, what percentage of orthodontists uh, that you know uh, work with myofunctional therapists on a regular basis? Not very many. I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's like the one percent of orthodontists who they've really done a lot of continuing education. They've really gone out of their way to learn about these things, 
Um, I, I teach courses for dental hygienists who want to become myofunctional therapists. Mm -hmm. And within the last two years, I've noticed a huge uptick in the amount of dentists and orthodontists who are interested in taking my courses, which I think is really amazing. So I think the interest is changing. I think that's, that's, it's growing, but it's still the, it's a very small percentage of, of orthodontists who are actually going to be aware of these things. So it's like one of my uh, visions. Well, what surprises me, there's so much in the literature to uh, advocate what we do. Uh, And um, I mean, I don't know how many times a day I would say to one of my patients in treatment, you know, keep Mm -hmm. your lips together, put your tongue on your palate, breathe through your nose, right? Yeah. Um, And I guess once I educate the parent of why those three things are important and give them the literature to review, they they really work with that kid. Um, So I just don't understand, certainly in my practice, the push comes from parents wanting to see me for this service. But those who don't know about it, once I spend some time and explain how important it is for the stability of their kids' teeth, to help their kids sleep, um, help their kids' cognitive performance, i.e. how they behave, and also how attentive they are in class. I mean, parents get it straight away. So I I guess it will take time like anything, but um, Mm -hmm. more and more of the younger orthodontists certainly seem to be uh, uh, on board with this. Yeah, I I think it just, it's requiring kind of a paradigm shift in the way we think about dentistry and orthodontics. And I find that, yeah, like you said, a lot of the newer, younger dentists are coming out and they're really interested in the sleep, but not just treating it with an appliance, like a mandibular advancement device, but like they're starting to ask, why do we have these issues? And a lot of it, it starts in childhood with these seemingly simple problems like mouth breathing or tongue tie and so what we don't realize is that if these kids grow into an adult with these symptoms without correcting it they're going to have way bigger problems down the road and it's not just dental problems it's health problems across the board so that's I think super important for parents to know and and I agree once parents understand like once someone explains it to them in a way that they get they're like why wouldn't I do this therapy it's this important so um but Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. Sorry. I was going to say, unfortunately, it's still not mainstream. I, I feel like if I asked 100 dentists, I don't even know if one would really be super aware and, um, you know, it, just in like a general across the board poll. So I think it's really important for parents to know that not all orthodontists are doing the same treatment. They're not all equal. So you really have to seek out those providers that understand these bigger picture issues. At least that's what I try to encourage my patients to do. And I must admit, I was a non-believer uh, initially. Uh, I felt that if a kid had sleep-related issues, uh, the only two people that need to get involved were the ear, nose, and throat doctor, you know, to clear out their adenoids, tonsils, um, <clears throat> help their allergies, etc., uh, and the orthodontist, because we can widen the top jaw, we can bring the lower jaw forward. And that's all I was doing. And I was getting success, but I wouldn't say um, amazing success. And and I wasn't getting the stability, you know, so I used to send kids to the nose and throat doctor, they'd be snoring, they'd be disruptive in sleep. And um, the parent would uh, notice an improvement, probably for the first month after the operation. And then that's, you know what, my kids reverted back to all the same problems he had. And that made me thinking, well, what's the missing link? And, and, and as you know, with my PhD research in Barcelona, yeah. uh, the best cases the most stable cases and those who had the lowest apnea index at the end of treatment were those that had the regular treatment with the oral myologist so um sarah can you maybe share some case examples where you've helped kids um 
uh, not in, in their sleep, but maybe in their overall general health with what you do? Yeah, I think um, before I talk about anything specific, I do think it's really important for parents and even for dentists and healthcare professionals to realize that these this therapy that I do, it's exercises, but it's really just designed to restore normal function. I mean, these are the things that I teach are things that we should all be doing from the day we're born. We should all be breathing through our nose. We should all be swallowing correctly. Our tongue should be in the palate. Our lips should be together. And that's so basic and so simple that I think if we can all just kind of like think about it, and I, I always have to kind of remind people, it's really just trying to restore normal everyday things that we should all do. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, when you can start to just get kids to do things that they would do anyway, like that we all should do anyway, like breathe through our nose, now you can start to see big changes. So I think as far as specific stuff, um, definitely improvements in uh, behavior. So uh, you've definitely made the connection, I think, in, in a lot of your research on the the sleep issues. And so sleep issues lead to growth and development issues and um, issues in school with behavior and um, kids' ability to control their emotions. And if we can just get them to breathe better and then they can sleep better, now they can have better you know, lives in general. They can do better in school. They can have all of these things that if they didn't have a breathing problem, they probably wouldn't be dealing with. So I think with kids and especially, I would say the six to 12 age group right in there, if if they're getting and it's not just me, I'm just a piece of the puzzle, but if they're getting the orthodontic treatment, the ENT treatment, and the myofunctional treatment, which I know your research focuses on all three, um, this is where I see huge changes. So I don't think it's as optimal to just do one. And I always encourage parents, you know, sometimes they're coming to me thinking, if we can do this therapy, maybe we can avoid the braces. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. This is critical for you to do. But like, look at the size of the palate, look at the crowding, we need the orthodontic intervention too. So um, I think behavior and and allergies are the biggest changes that I see. So um, and, and sleep. So I can expand more on the allergies if you want, but yeah, no, we, we, that'd be good if we could. Um, wh- yeah. One thing that, um, that I've noticed is that um, a, a lot of these kids uh, also have some form of lip and tongue tie. Would you say there's a higher percentage? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You want, you want to expand so a bit on that for parents? Because um, I think parents have heard the term lip tie, tongue tie, but they seem to only associate it with, say, a newborn baby that couldn't breastfeed or something mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, as an orthodontist, um, I'm using the criteria of Audrey Yoon, you know, which, yeah. which where we measure the, the mm-hmm. function of how the kid can lift the tongue and get the lips together. Maybe is there something you can share with parents uh, on how they could uh, look at a kid's mouth and see whether maybe they have uh, this, uh, what, what we call it? Um, uh, the restriction. The restrictions, yeah. I think, you know, in some kids, it's going to be obvious. You'll look at the tongue and you can literally see it's anchored to the floor of the mouth. Um, and I think that's what we traditionally learn as dental professionals. That's a tongue tie. 
But what the newest research that's coming out of Stanford with Dr. Sarusagi and Dr. Christian Gimeno and um, what and Audrey Yoon, what we're learning is that there's a, a whole classification system and some tongue ties don't look that restricted, but they actually might be causing a functional problem or a breathing problem. So I think there's some that are going to look super obvious to parents. Like if you have a child open their mouth and lift up their tongue and the tip of the tongue bows in like a heart shape, that's going to be an obvious one. But I think it's important for parents to get to somebody who's really knowledgeable in identifying these like less obvious tongue ties and, and lip t restrictions because it's hard for even me sometimes when I'm, I'm looking in a patient's mouth and I think there is a restriction there, but I don't know how to what degree it's actually affecting the child or, or the adult. So uh, sometimes it takes going through several therapy sessions for me before I make the decision on whether or not I would even recommend to release, um, to surgically release that, that freedom. So um, yeah, if you see an obvious one, like if you look at it as a parent and you know, then that's a sure sign that, you know, get to the orthodontist, get to the oral myologist and, you know, there's, there's big problems brewing just under the surface with, with a lot of other things potentially. And, and, you know, I'm noticing a high link between the kids who are tongue tied and the size of their palate because common sense, the, the, the tongue actually stimulates the palate to widen and grow normally. So if your tongue can't lift, obviously there's a huge correlation. And um, uh, the other thing that I found over the years, when I learned more about how to diagnose a tongue tie and we started releasing them, we weren't doing the oral myology before or after the release. So really, exactly. maybe the kid got some improvement, but they got a lot of scar tissue post-surgery and they weren't, um, you know, can you, can you expand a little bit on, yeah. on how, say a mum finds a practitioner who agrees that the kid is tongue-tied, what mm -hmm. would be your protocol to make sure that release gives the kid the best long-term benefit? Yeah. It's such an interesting topic because you probably know this, but I, I for sure have realized this. Um, in the past 10 years, so much has changed in this area. So, you know, what we were talking about 10 years ago or five years ago or even three years ago, the protocols have changed even for me personally with my patients and my practice. So, um, you know, we used to not really recommend exercises afterwards. We kind of just said, oh, do some before or maybe just do some afterwards. But now for me personally, I recommend um, I mean, I, I think it's funny now because I recommend usually six to eight weeks of exercises on the front end, which is way more like when I first got started in this field, we were saying one or two weeks, maybe. And so I think what we're learning as therapists and as um, practitioners, uh, you know, especially me working with the Breathe Institute and having that exposure to, to Dr. Zaghi and all that, uh, we're just seeing that the success is so much better when you, when you load the exercises more on the front end. And then of course there's post-operative things that need to be done on, on, you know, afterwards too. So typically for me uh, in my practice, I meet with patients once every two weeks. And so we might do three sessions or maybe two sessions before probably more like three. So that would be um, six weeks. So three sessions, six weeks, then you have the surgery. It's a really simple procedure. It's, it's, it's easy for, you know, recovery and all that stuff. You don't need general anesthesia, nothing like that. And then I usually meet with people one to three days after it's done. And then from there, we meet back again in one or two weeks, and then we continue on. So typically I do 12 sessions with my patients, but 
every therapist might vary on that a little bit differently. I know some do, you know, eight, some do more like 15 or 20. Um, 12 seems to be kind of the sweet spot for me. But of course, depending on what the patient needs, um, I can tailor more or less for them. So. And, and would you say you do something similar before a kid goes off to so what I'm doing now? If, if I send mm-hmm. a kid with huge adenoids and tonsils to the nose and throat doctor, and mm-hmm. the nose and throat doctor agrees, yes, for sleep, um, uh, for uh, various reasons, they're going to mm-hmm. get those removed. What would you recommend that parent do as far as myofunctional therapy before the surgery, after the surgery? Can you expand a bit on that? Because that's a very common thing in Australia. Um, uh, our, we work with very good enos and throat doctors, and they yeah. uh, they really understand the link between facial growth and development um, uh, and mouth breathing. They understand the um, uh, the work uh, that's been done on a kid's cognitive performance. You know, so so yeah. I think we're, when I speak to people around the world, they're always saying, "Oh yeah, but I send them to the enos and throat doctor, and he says everything's fine. They'll grow out of their tonsils." I, I think we don't have that problem in Australia, thank God, right? Um, but, but at the same time, we do have a lot of venous and throat colleagues who feel that if they just remove the enlarged tissue, uh, the kid will revert to normal breathing. Can, can you expand on what you would do before and after an enos and throat yeah. Uh, uh, intervention? Yeah. yeah, for sure. Because and, and I do feel like this is almost like a missing piece of information, even for a lot of ENTs, at least in the US, it sounds like maybe you guys are a little further ahead, but I feel like most of the conversations that I have with um, ear, nose and throat doctors is it's all about physical obstruction, but it's not about retraining breathing. Now that your nose and your sinuses and your throat are clear, if you don't, if you've never breathed through your nose, you're not going to just revert to doing it, especially for kids, I would say over age six. If they're three, you know, potentially they can just spontaneously start nasal breathing now that they have the, the, the clear um, airway. But I think for kids who are any older than six, or probably even five, they have to practice using their nose. So typically there's always a bit of a lag time between when I meet with a patient and, you know, maybe the dentist meets with the patient and then we determine, okay, let's go see the ENT. So what I like to do is get some if I can, you know, as, as much time as I can, maybe two to four weeks, just practicing breathing through the nose, because unless it's like a severe, severe obstruction, there's always the ability to breathe through the nose. So a test that I like that I learned from Patrick McEwen, he says, if you can breathe through your nose for one minute, you can breathe through your nose for life. And so I time people and I say, you know, let's, let's see if you can do one minute. And then if they can do one minute, then we'll practice for two or three. And so eventually, even if it's a little bit challenging, you just incrementally work up and you will have much more optimal results of, I think the habit changing um, when the, the patient is able to practice nasal breathing before and after. So uh, Patrick McEwen also talks a lot about, and so do I, but, um, the nasal nitric oxide that we all get when we breathe in through the nose, which actually, um, helps reduce inflammation and it's antimicrobial and it's antibacterial. So when we breathe through our nose, we're actually helping our airways heal and potentially fight off some of that inflammation or infection or whatever's going on with the tonsils and adenoids. So I think, Although it's not the easiest thing to do in short incremental practicing sessions with kids, they can get a lot better. And I think it's, it's so much better. Um, I'm not ever telling people that they shouldn't see the ENT, 
but typically it takes them a while to get appointments and stuff. So while we're waiting on the surgery, I, I love working on nasal breathing and breathing re-education, breathing retraining as much as possible. So yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can I bring up the, the topic of uh, bedwetting or what we know as nocturnal enuresis? You know, I'm seeing yeah. a lot of kids with narrow palates who are mouth breathers, you know, also as one of the signs and symptoms would be bedwetters. Can you, can you share your experience maybe from a clinical perspective uh, or um, research base, uh, what you think correlations are between what we're yeah. seeing in kids and, and bedwetters? Well, I noticed that if I have that on the part of the questionnaire that I ask parents, a lot of the kids with the myofunctional symptoms, so mouth breathing, um, a lot of the kids with the sleep symptoms, like they maybe they've been told they have sleep disorder breathing or they snore or they have sleep apnea. Um, there's definitely a connection in kids with those symptoms to bedwetting. So um, sometimes I'm the first person to pick up on this. I might just you know, sometimes patients, they find me and they're, they're, they haven't seen a dentist and I have to try to find someone to help them in that way. Um, and so sometimes I end up being that person to say, oh, it looks like, you know, you marked off that there's consistent bedwetting and they're like eight. So they're past the age where that's normal. Um, and then I do end up having the conversation with parents, you know, kind of saying, I'm not like diagnosing you with sleep apnea, but this is a red flag. This ticks a box for me in, in my head that says there's potentially a problem here. And um, I really want you to get evaluated by a dentist or an orthodontist or an ENT or somebody who can do some sort of sleep screening for you. So there's a, a definite connection that I see um, with bedwetting as a, it's like a red flag to me if I see it. So uh, I think that's good for all parents to know. You know, and, and in Australia, I think we're a nation of mouth breathers, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the majority of Australians come from uh, some sort of uh, uh, Anglo background, uh, mm -hmm. and they're in a country that has really unique uh, flora. <laughs> so, so every second kid has allergies, right? And if they don't have allergies, we're a sporting nation. So every kid breaks their nose at some stage, right? Yeah. Um, so it keeps our, you know, the doctors busy. But I think a lot of parents um, probably don't get the link that sometimes those large adenoids and tonsils are due to the kid's allergies. And if they're not mm -hmm. under control, possibly you're going to go back for a second round of tonsil adenoid removal. Um, you want yeah. to talk a little bit about allergies and how you diagnose and possibly how you help parents um, get the kid over that problem? Well, the thing that I see in a lot of my patients and, and uh, it's, it's typically the adults who can give me the feedback. So it's either the parent commenting on what they've noticed in the kids or it's an adult patient that I'm working with. But once you start nasal breathing consistently, your nose is actually doing what it's meant to do. So it's cleaning and filtering the air before you breathe it in. So I know that for me personally, I used to struggle with allergies. And since I've become a consistent nasal breather, I'm really not affected by seasonal allergies at all anymore. And this is something I hear consistently with my patients is that if you actually breathe through your nose, the allergies don't affect you, um, at least to the same extent in most people. Um, and, and again, I think that has to do with the nitric oxide, the nose cleaning and filtering the air. And then also, um, once you are using your nose, now the adenoids and tonsils can actually have the chance to shrink potentially. I mean, I, I definitely don't guarantee that, but um, depending on the size and how long they've been enlarged, a lot of times just switching from mouth breathing to nasal breathing can have an influence on um, the, the tonsils. So I think allergies improve, 
tonsil and adenoids can improve. And that's just a simple, it's like so simple, like just breathe through your nose and you can have these big impactful changes um, on, on allergies for sure. And I bring up another topic. Uh, in Australia, I feel there's a huge misdiagnosis of ADHD children, right? And mm-hmm. I remember the light bulb moment for me was when I read the research of uh, David Gozal, um, and he was uh, linking kids' behavioral problems to their poor sleep. Um, do you want to touch base on kids you've helped uh, who have ADHD, uh, maybe uh, um, how they've got off their meds? Because it's a big problem in Australia. I think we unfortunately um, have um, have uh, one of the highest prescription rates of Ritalin uh, in any Western country. So uh, I think a lot of parents would be interested on your view if their kid is being you know, diagnosed uh, with uh, attention problems. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I work with a lot of parents who, you know, I think if they had the choice, they would prefer not to have their kids on medication. So once once they learn that there's a connection with the breathing and the airway and um, all of these symptoms that I'm helping uh, manage along with these other doctors, I think a lot of times the parents do hope that maybe they can get their kids off that medication. So it's a conversation that I end up having a lot. Um, I think, you know, in my position, not being a doctor, I'm always a little bit hesitant to, to, to even talk about that. Um, but I do work with a lot of kids who have been able to um, either lower the, the dose of the ADD medication or get off of it completely. But I really try to leave that up to the doctors to manage. And so, um, you know, I feel like I have to kind of walk more of a tricky, yeah. tricky ground yeah. than you on that, not being a doctor. I, I always say to parents, um, it's not going to hurt your kid just to get a sleep study. And if we're wrong, then you, 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 you haven't lost anything, but if we're right and your kid has things like uh, sleep disorder, breathing problems in particular sleep apnea and mm-hmm. their sleep is so disruptive because I think what people don't understand as an adult, if you don't sleep well, the next day you are tired, you're lethargic, mm-hmm. you know, you can't wait to get to bed. Um, kids, uh, who have the same problem behave differently. They actually become hyperactive, yeah. right? And I know, yeah. uh, you know, if you, when I, when I had young kids, man, if they stayed uh, up past their bedtime by an hour, they were climbing the wall, right? So, uh, yeah. so I think, I, I think it's um, important for parents to understand that there is a link between sleep and um, behavioral issues. And, and I'd be happy to share some of the excellent papers of Dr. Gazal, uh, also Stephen Sheldon, you know, on, uh, mm. which is the next topic I'm going to bring up. Uh, and that well, the, is kids, kids grinding their teeth, right? Because I get yeah. a lot of parents who come in and say, I'm treating a 13-year-old in braces. And they said, Dr. Mahoney, we went camping uh, last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time I've slept next to my seven-year-old since he was a baby. And let me tell you, no one could get to sleep because that kid grinds his teeth all night. Uh, so what are your thoughts on grinding teeth for children? Yeah, I mean, it's something that, again, it ticks one of those boxes, like the bedwetting, the hyperactivity, the teeth grinding. And it's interesting because it's actually pretty well documented in the literature that these things are all connected to sleep issues. I don't know why it's not like common knowledge, because it is, it's easy to find papers on it, right? Yeah. Um, so the the grinding, I mean, the theories that I hear are kids, they're trying to open up their airway. So they're trying to move the mandible forward. Um, they'll, they'll contort their bodies. They'll move around and sleep because they're just trying to get a clear airway uh, in order to breathe. And so 
will our bodies will do whatever it takes to breathe. And if that means grinding the teeth to move the jaw forward, um, then, you know, that's potentially one, one reason that that's happening. I've heard some interesting um, things lately that, uh, you know, a lot of different dentists are talking about with teeth grinding and that it's not actually just happening at night. The, the patients who we see so much wear on, a lot of it's actually happening during the day and, we, and the patient doesn't realize it. So I wonder if that applies to kids. I've only heard it in relation to adults, but I know, you know, there's a crossover between uh, sleep apnea, airway issues, myofunctional issues, and teeth grinding. So, um, and, and I think, don't you even have some research on that talking more about the grinding? Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, in our sleep studies, one thing we looked at in the kids, uh, other than their apnea yeah. index was the, uh, incidence of grinding and, and definitely we it's saw correlations high. there. Very high. Yeah. yeah um, I, I think it's pretty high for sure. So Sarah, um, uh, I know one of your roles other than working with children is, um, is education, right? And I mm-hmm. recommend, there's so many courses out there for people to go off and take to become a, what's the word, oral myologist, myofunctional therapist. But you know yeah. what? I find a lot of them give theory. And then when these poor individuals finish the course, they're kind of bedazzled as to, okay, what do I really do now? I've got this kid in front of me, you know, could, can, mm-hmm. can I, can I ask two questions here? One is how can a parent find out more about your services and how, Maybe you can interact with them through um, Skype or Zoom. And the secondly, um, what about some of my students, some of my students' dental hygienists who are interested in furthering their scope of practice and their education? How could they interact with you? Yeah, I think it's such a good question because now it is getting more popular. You're seeing more and more courses kind of popping up with, um, you know, become a myofunctional therapist or oral facial myologist. And so I do think now it's getting to the point where parents might not know how to choose, just like it might be confusing, like, how do I find the right orthodontist? How do I find the right oral myologist? So, uh, you know, if anyone reaches out to me, um, I have the option. I mean, people can work with me. I also have tons of students that I've trained that I love pairing people with and they all have varying degrees of experience. And so I think there's nothing wrong with asking your myofunctional therapist how long they've been practicing or maybe vaguely uh, how many patients they've seen, um, how many patients have they seen who's similar to your child. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking those questions. And it's not to be mean, but it's because experience always makes you better, right? Like if I go back 10 years ago and I was totally new at all this, uh, I didn't know what I was doing compared to what I know today. So um, as, as far as the, the training goes, it's something I'm super passionate about because I see a lot of people getting training and then not knowing what what to do with it. And so that's really where I created my program and and I'd love it if your students want to take it. Yeah. Send them my way. Um, My program is it's 12 weeks long and it's really designed to give people the information over a a longer period of time and then actually help them see their first patient. So I have an internship that they go through where they work with patients as part of it. It's like a proctoring. And so I don't want anyone to leave my program and say that they didn't feel prepared. Um, To me, that means it's not a good program. (laughs) So I want people to come out the other end confident um, with the skills and with the ability to actually start to see patients. That's my goal. So fantastic. Uh, And um, on that point, uh, as you may or may not be aware, 
we are in lockdown at the moment where uh, uh, all the dentists can't go to work and do what they love, mm-hmm. which is seeing patients, right? So yeah. a lot of dentists are using yeah. this opportunity to improve their CPD. It's also not a great time for them to spend money on CPD because they don't know when their next paycheck is yeah. coming in, right? Exactly. So what, what we've launched in Australia um, is uh, it's called CPD Lockdown Seminars, right? So we do a one-hour seminar on various topics now, and our audience has grown like from um, a couple of hundred to nearly uh, seven and a half thousand people tuning in. That's right? amazing. Yeah. But Sarah, thanks so much um, for giving your time and your, uh, you know, your experience. Uh, I know you're passionate about what you do. For those who, who may not know listening to this, the way I met Sarah was um, uh, in the U.S. at a conference, and I knew she was passionate about what she did. And back then, I was just toying with the idea of, you know, should we become more integrative in our practice? And and Sarah sort of said, uh, maybe mistakenly, look, you know what, I've always wanted to come to Australia. So uh, uh, fast forward six months later, Sarah was um, – working with me in Sydney and became the practice manager of my Ramwick practice, right? Yes, it's <laughs> so, fun. So I've kept it Sarah for years and I know she has a wealth of experience. It's not just, um, you know, sometimes I meet people in my travels who walk the walk and talk the talk, but they really don't have that depth of knowledge in treating patients. You have that, which is, which, which I see when you, you, when you, when you talk and when you educate, you're, you're passionate about it. So thanks once again. And um, uh, we will, uh, post details how you can contact Sarah uh, for any parent out there who wants to uh, gain more information on their kids' sleep. Uh, we'll also have information how you can contact our practice. We work with a number of sleep physicians who can organize your, your child to have a sleep study. And really, uh, the sleep study is done uh, through Medicare, so it doesn't even cost you anything. And I think that's a great start. If you're unsure, get a sleep study, see what's going on with your kids' sleep, and we, and we can take it from there. So um, thanks again, uh, Sarah. Um, I can mention, I mean, I've got a YouTube channel with lots of great educational content yep, for yep. patients. So I think, you know, I created that for my own patients and it's kind of grown to something I never thought it would, but okay. it's just short little videos on, you know, the myofunctional components um, that connect to sleep and dentistry and, and all these things that if you're a patient or a parent and you want to go check out and just learn some stuff, yep. check yep. out my YouTube channel. What, what about a book, Sarah? Do you recommend a, a book for parents to read on this topic? I like, um, do you know Sharon Moore? Um, she's I do, great, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sleep Wrecked Kids, and I, I got the opportunity to meet her and lecture with her, and she's awesome. So I think her book is great, okay. Sleep Wrecked Kids. Yeah. yeah, perfect. All right. Well, thanks, Sarah. I'll end meeting, and look after yourself. Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.